Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Welcome everyone, here we go again for another fantastic episode of our wicked podcast series, Dead Rock Stars. Now, we're going to be talking about someone today who is perhaps not, I don't know, as up there in the firmament of rock herohood as Phil Leinert, you know, and, and David Bowie and oh, the people oh, we talked I, about. I, you would beg to differ? Totally. How many hit singles did Thin Lizzy and Phil Leinert combined well, have? Well, no, you make a good point. No, tell me any. Come uh, was, on. It, was it 11? Okay. How many did Status Quo have with Rick Parfit? Is that who we're talking about today, Rick Parfit? It's always <laughs> going to be this huge reveal. Oh, no, no. We're doing Rick Parfit today, everyone. Mick's quite right. I do overcook this intro, but it's how I do things. You know what I mean? Yes, we're talking about Rick Parfit. Sadly departed uh, the day before Christmas, I believe, on 2016. So we're talking about, what, a year and a half ago at this point? You haven't answered the question. How what many hit singles have Status Quo had in the UK? In the UK, I'm going to say uh, 28. 65. 65. 65. Been on top of the pops more times than any act in history. Good Lord. More times than the Stones and the Beatles combined. Well, that's less of an interesting fact if you consider the Beatles probably only did top of the pops once, if ever, you know. But still, it's the Beatles that we're talking about. More than any group. More than any group in history. Now, you can't really get a more impressive opening statistic than that, can you, when you come to our our podcast? And... Rick Parfit, I met him a few times. I thought he was a splendid bloke. You knew him, I think, rather better than me. I did. I knew him and Francis Rossi. Still know Francis. Well, many years. Many years of yeah. knowing the quo. Well, look, the purpose of this podcast, the reason why everyone is sitting there listening in, is to find out what these people were like. Mm. So tell me, mate, how was Parfit? What was he like? What drove him? What sort of character was he? Like, I guess, most people, you know, his one of his great charms also turned out to be one of his sort of big weaknesses. And in Rick's case, it was all about being a rock star. Yeah. You know, he to the day he died, he had a, a gold necklace with a guitar on it. Damn straight. And I remember he always used to ask me to call him Rock. He said, because that's my nickname. Everybody calls me Rock, OK? And I mentioned this to Francis the other day, and we both laughed because neither one of us could ever recall anyone ever calling him Rock. He must have been taking the piss when he said that. No. Rick was an irony-free zone. He oh, really? Was, yeah, he was an only child. Unreconstructed. Completely unreconstructed. Interesting, um, interesting. He was a guy who lived for fast cars, swimming pools, yeah. rock stardom. He lived for swimming pools, you tell me. Uh, That's he... an unusual thing to say about <laughs> a person, isn't it? I'm sorry. Well, limousines, swimming pools, chicks, drugs, yeah. you know. Drugs, I'm sure drugs you, I'm you sure. There were drugs involved. 
That doesn't come as a surprise to you, surely. Talking of coming as a surprise, is it true they used to sit around watching porn together? Status quo. No. Uh, well, yes, but you've well, made is it, it, isn't it? You, I mean... Well, I'll answer if you'll let me. <laughs> Um, The answer is, it isn't the way you've just made it sound. In this modern age, it sounds as if the two of them would sit there over a laptop together, having a jodrell bank. (laughs) That story comes from the very early 70s, when Status Quo would be touring around Europe and elsewhere. And particularly in Europe, uh, in those days, we lived in the era of blue movies. Mm -hmm. No internet, no video cassettes. So what they used to do is they used to rent these blue movies, Mm. and they would go into a hotel room after a show, put a big white sheet on the wall yeah. and uh, roll... Project it. Project the blue movie. What were they projecting? I'm sorry. I well, porn. Yeah, I'm joking. I was making a rude joke. Yeah, these projecting. jokes don't... Yeah. Devoid of laughter jokes. Just plain interruption. So you it, want to hear the fucking yeah, story in, or don't you? In what way is what you're saying? Not I'm trying to them. fucking tell you the story. I think they sat around and had a wank together. I haven't finished the nor, story, nor have I denied nor, what you're saying. Give me a they. fucking chance to tell the story. <laughs> Continue, please. So they would roll these cine films in the 70s and all four band members, all four band members would be in the room having a wank. Quite often with groupies and prostitutes in the room and the band used to profess to enjoy the movies more than they did uh, shagging the groupies and prostitutes. So the ladies were sat off to one side having a gin and tonic or whatever? Oh no, they'd be joining in. But uh, it would all be very much focused on the movie. You know, you have to remember that this wasn't every single night on tour. This is just, you know, certain nights on tour. Every other night. You also have to try and dig out an episode of Life on Mars to see what England was like in the early 70s. There was nothing else to do after 10.30 at night (laughs) other than if you were Black Sabbath, get out your Ouija board. Or if you were Status Quo, get a Super 8 Cine blue movie of uh, Deep Throat. Tell me about him. Was he a good bloke? Well, I was trying to tell you, wasn't I? It feels like you couldn't care less what he was like. Right. Do you want to hear what he was like? Oh, very much so. I liked him. I want to know what your perspective is. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Go on. Um, I won't interrupt. He was Mr. Rockstar. You know, I mean, from the, the word go, he met status quo at Butlin's holiday camp in Minehead. Before that, he'd been at another lesser holiday camp as a, a yellow coat, a canary. And uh, his party piece as a child, he was a child star, he used to do babyface and kind of pub-type sing-alongs yeah. like that. Yeah. By the time he gets to Butlins, he's in a trio with two twins, sisters, uh, doing a, a kind of a, a cabaret act. Mm. Mum and dad friendly, kid friendly, lame suits, the whole nine yards. This is the very early 60s. And then one day he goes across to see the, the noisy pop group. Yeah. This is at a time when Quo, like all pop groups, are in suits and ties and mm. short hair. And uh, he goes over and uh, and Francis has a memory of literally just doing like a rehearsal in the afternoon. And suddenly this bloke just standing in front of the stage staring at them. And as soon as they'd finished, uh, Rick went over and said, uh, I want to do that. I want to do what you're doing. Yeah. And one day I'm going to. And uh, to Constantina this a bit, two years later, he was in status quo. God. And as the years went by... Rick and Francis became a double act. You yeah. know, Quo were a proper rock band, but John Cochran, the drummer, left in early, the early 80s. Alan Lancaster, that sort of classic Brian Jones of the Stones way, saw it as his band, and, and it sort of was to begin with. Mm. Was it his band, essentially, Francis's band? No, no, it was really Alan Lancaster's band. Oh, is that right? And Francis was his sort of little brother, do what I say, 
not what I do. Yeah. And then Rick was Francis's little brother, as it were. But Alan bails out because Quo start doing songs like Margarita Time, yeah. which could have been done by the Brotherhood of Man, sure. you know, but was an enormous Christmas hit. Mm-hmm. Rick, no foibles, really. He just loved the success. Rick's best friends in inverted commas, in the late 70s were George Best and Alex Hurricane Higgins. Bloody hell. So this is what we're talking about. Page three girls, cocaine, That's champagne. Night out, isn't it? Fucking hell. Well, Rick believed in big nights out. I mean, I'm jumping around as usual here, but in uh, 97, when he had his first heart attack, yeah, his first of three, it led to him having a quadruple bypass. And while he was in the private ward of the hospital he and Francis told me it was like a carry on movie because Rick would be in there with his girlfriend yeah and then they'd have to sneak the girlfriend out a side door because his wife was about to arrive bloody hell so then he'd have his wife in there he's had the quadruple bypass he's lying in bed with all the wires coming out of it then she would be ushered out and he would take the whole caboodle. He'd get out of bed, you know, the whole yeah, the contraption sort of, um, the drip thing and walk around with it drag it to the gents smoke some cigarettes come back. He was supposed to be in there for two months. He checked himself out after three weeks because he was bored. And he told me that very night, because he's talked like that, you know, he said, uh, yeah. I, I hadn't had a big night in ages. So I thought, you know, I'm due a big night. So he got a roadie to carry him into his house, lay him on the couch, then go out and buy him a quarter ounce of coat. Jeez carton of 200 cigarettes, four bottles of champagne. I said, so what, did you have people over? He said, no, no, just me and the bird, you know, just <laughs> having a big night. This is right after surgery. This is three weeks after quadruple bypass, yeah. You have he, to admire he, it, don't you? He was back on stage a month after that. You know, in some ways you have to admire this. If I had a quadruple bypass, I wouldn't leave the <laughs> sofa for fucking 20 years. I'd oh, milk the most out of it. Certainly we've been having seven grams of cocaine, no. And the fact is, again, jumping ahead, Mick, he did not die of these things, did he? No, when he, he died, didn't. as I understand it, it was an infection that he had in his shoulder or something, wasn't it? It was sepsis. Yeah. But let's get to that in a minute. Yeah, sure. Because I feel sorry for the quo. I mean, in your intro, you kind of said, well, he wasn't as important as Phil Liner or somebody like that. And that is the popular perception. <clears throat> yeah. Nevertheless, you know, Liner's hit-making career lasted five years maximum. Quo have been going for over 50 now. Tell you something funny. I was born in the 70s, but I grew up listening to rock music in the 80s. And in the 80s, Quo was a very different beast to what it had been before. I clearly remember reading Smash Hits magazine in about 1987. And the headline was 1990 or bust. <laughs> the idea being that they were already these veterans, extremely long in the tooth, which of course they fucking weren't. They were right. probably in their 30s right. at that point. I don't right. know. And the idea of like all the way to 1990. That's ridiculous. And here we go. Francis is still touring with Quo. Am I right about that? Uh, Yeah. The most recent Quo tour was at the end of last year, but they've been doing festivals this summer. The brand is still very much alive. Very much alive. Although by 87, in fairness to Smash Hits, they had already broken up Uh. once already. They did a farewell tour. They did their first farewell tour. (laughs) In the 80s. In 1983. Okay. God, really? As early as that. And they ended that with this massive show at Milton Keynes Bowl. You know, 50,000 people all going crazy, huge. And at this point, they are all out of their mind on yeah, drugs. Yeah. And Francis, who who has been sober and completely clean and sober for nearly 30 years now. But in 83, I mean, he tells me that uh, the roadie yeah. had to literally throw him over his shoulder and carry him onto the stage. <laughs> 
They were talking about <laughs> tying him up to the mic to keep going. Um, uh, and yet, Rock, uh, Rick, and he called him Rock. That would have been. A, we should call him Rock. If only at some he point. was still alive, he'd have loved that. Um, Rick was the one that was perceived to be the one that was really out of it, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bloody but, hell. But Rick was also the guy who married this very, gl- his second wife, yeah. very glamorous, blonde, yeah. fur coat, you know, they'd be pictured in the sun or something. Yeah. They got divorced and then he married her again. Ah. <sighs> Just to be sure, the second time, just for good measure. This is the George Best of rock. You know, this he was a good-looking bloke. He had the blonde thing going on. He, he did looked good. He had he that did. whole sort of young, youthful thing. Even though, uh, anyway, I, I wanted to refer back to my intro and say, well, he wasn't the biggest rock star in the world. What I really meant to say was that perhaps he was slightly less the face of Quo than Francis. Oh yeah, for sure. So that that's all right. And it ate at him. Ah, really? It really ate at him. I mean, he must have made an insane amount of money out of Quo. He spent an insane amount of money. He reinvested it. By the, by the local pub. <laughs> well, here's a typical... When I, I mean, uh, I'd known them for many, many, many years. And then in 2003, I was invited to ghost a joint memoir that Rick and Francis did together. Yeah. And in the course of that, I went on tour with them and interviewed them and went on for weeks and months. We did the book, very, very successful, yada, yada. Mm. But at that time, obviously, I got to know them both. But here was the thing. I would go off to interview Francis at his eight-bedroom mansion on a privately run estate in London. Mm -hmm. And then the next day, I'd drive to where Rick had a flat by the river in a tower block. It was a penthouse, what they call a low rise. But it was still a flat. It was like a two bed flat or something, maybe three. And because he loved boats, of course, he had a speed boat. You know, this is, you're starting to get the picture now, speed boat. They had their own pier or whatever you call it, dock. Yeah, yeah. And there was a bar and restaurant there and he would be in there every (laughs) single day. Oh, well, you would be. But he would come in and say, hello, Rick, all right, Rick, 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 Uh, Rick. So I would always interview him there because he didn't want to take me up to the flat. Yeah, right. I think because he understood the juxtaposition from where I'd just been the day before Mm. in the acre-long manicured garden with the fountains might be a bit different. But I remember being there, and here's two quick stories which summed him up. Not, Not summed him up, but with two aspects of him that were absolutely part of his DNA. Yeah. The first, the rock star thing and where his money went. Crazy about cars. I mean, crazy. He had Rolls Royces, Porsches, endless stuff. And uh, I'm not a petrol head. I, I wouldn't know a Bentley from a Beetle. Uh, a, a maestro. A maestro. Yeah, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> to me, that's someone that conducts an orchestra or something. That would be a conductor, but we digress. So he's got a new Bentley. Yeah. Come outside, I'll show you my new Bentley. And it's one of those things, It's it's been on a list. You know, you, you know, there's this list where, like, if you're on the list, you're one of the first 50 yeah, people right. to get the new... Like Elton John does or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know how much this thing costs. Let's say half a million for yeah. argument's sake. Yeah. And he's showing it to me. And honestly, it's a complete yawn. I mean, at the end of the day, here's a steering wheel, you know, and here's the dashboard. And he showed me the TV on the dashboard, which in 2003 was a little bit of a novelty, I suppose, you know. <laughs> yeah, and it's got this, and it's got the twin dual 5.9 yeah, traction, wankery. da da da. Yeah. yeah, I'm the same. I couldn't give a fuck about it. Couldn't this. give a fuck. Anyway, I'm, ooh, wow, you know, all that stuff. Great. 20 odd minutes of this. We go back in the restaurant. Two hours later, I leave again because we've done our interview. Now, because I don't live in London, it was a, a schlep to yeah. get to Rick's place in Twickenham and yeah. then all the way back. So I would bring a packed lunch, OK? <laughs> so I, as I left him, I go back to my car in the car park and I'm having my little sandwich and my <laughs> juice, you know. 
And um, he's obviously assumed I've gone because it's 10 minutes later. And I see him, he's out at the Bentley again. Only this time he's got someone else with him. He's giving him the, oh, it's got the five-point injection, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. And you can tell this bloke sort of nodding really like, oh, my God. You know. And I thought, OK, I've got to go. So I pack away my stuff and I sort of ease out the carpet and I look. It's one of the waiters from oh, the bar. Oh, bless. That's it's, slightly tragic. You know, I drove away thinking, do you know what? This is how these guys end up with hangers on yeah, and wankers yeah, around yeah, them. Because yeah. they're desperate for friends. Any fool could have come along into Rick's life at that moment and said, I'll be your best mate. Mm. He used to ring me from the back of his car on his mobile phone. Let me yeah. hear the what he called the purr of the engine. Oh. And on a mobile phone, particularly in those days, you could hear it was... <laughs> <laughs> What do you think of that? What do you think of that? Does that sound like the 4.5 or the 6.0? Fuck off, Rick. I'm busy. Dead rock stars. They did it, so we don't have to. The second aspect of these visits to this restaurant where he just bought the Bentley was uh, literally two weeks later, I'm on the phone with him and making small talk. And I said, oh, by the way, how's the Bentley? He went, oh, I got rid of it. I went, what? I said, you'd only just taken delivery of your half million pounds. He said, he goes, yeah, you know, I took it out on the road. He said, she wasn't sitting up and begging, you know? She didn't sit up and beg. So in the end, uh, yeah, I gave her back. I said, but they wouldn't have just given you all your money back, would they? He said, well, most of it, most of it. So I thought, okay, I'm going to leave that one there. That illustrates the man, I think, quite well. Well, I spoke to his manager just after. I said, Rick got rid of the Bentley. He said, he does this all the time. Mm. What he likes is ordering it from the list, being on the list. He can tell people he's on the list. And then on the morning, he turns up at the dealers and they bring out champagne and, you know, make a huge fuss of him. And he gets all dressed up for this, brings the blonde wife and then drives the car home and, and shows it to everybody that comes near him and then completely loses interest. He always lost money on it. He then go out, I think after the Bentley, I can't remember what the next thing was, but it was a some amazing Mercedes or something. He also told me on that car-based theme, because in the 80s, after they'd done their farewell tour and before Live Aid, Rick went bankrupt. Oh, did he? So Rick's answer to going bankrupt was to check himself into a suite at the Dorchester (laughs) for three months, avoid paying the bill, eventually did a runner... He'd also been at the same time banned from driving for a year, caught for doing like 120 on the M4 in his Porsche. And it so happened that he got cleared of the bankruptcy and then a short time after had his driving licence reinstated. So what he did was he went out, this is 83 or uh, 84 or something, and bought a really cheap old Rolls Royce. And got his then wife Patsy, I don't know if they were still married or had divorced mm. and were remarrying, mm. but mm. somewhere on that journey with Patsy, who's you know very beautiful and blonde. And mm. He got her deliberately to sit in the front in a chauffeur's uniform with the cat <laughs> and to drive down the King's Road while he sat in the back of his Rolls Royce just sort of waving to people and chatting with taxi drivers That's out stunning. the window. And That's flair and panache. That's what you want from the <laughs> rock stars, isn't it? Dead Rock Stars with Mick Wall and Joel McIver. Is this anything to do with him wanting to exceed a poverty-stricken background, anything like that? You know, people take pride in the trappings of success, don't yeah, they? Yeah, uh, uh, possibly. Does that strike you? Maybe not? Yeah. He didn't come from a poor background. It was yeah, a yeah. working background. He was an only child, and he mm. was very indulged. Mm. He was always told he was amazing. He was always told he was the best. 
and there's nothing wrong with that. No, you know, no, no. Except, you know, he was kind of like a Peter Pan. I mean, when he died, you know, it was tragic. And then the next day we were all making jokes about how, you know, I never thought he'd die. That fucker had nine lives. Yeah. I mean, he died so many times yeah. before he died. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. He died six months before he died. They actually were giving him the last rites on a hospital table. <laughs> Fucker woke up. Jesus. I mean, he collapsed. Uh, he collapsed on tour. I think they're in the Isle of Wight or somewhere. Yeah. And he just, they're about to go on and he's in the tuning room and someone's come out to get something and they're chat, chat, chat. And it's like, oh, come on, where's Rick? We're ready to go on. Oh, go and get him. You know, and someone goes in there and he's, essentially dead on the floor so it so happened as luck would have it there was an ambulance that just i don't know what they'd done but there was someone there with an ambulance got him in took him to the hospital where he was pronounced dead reanimated him no no he was pronounced dead i mean that was it he's dead so i mean they're they're literally ringing you know wives and girlfriends and going out on the wire (laughs) Um, uh, he's dead. I mean, Francis says that when he was told he's dead, he went, oh, fuck off, he's always dead. He's not fucking dead. Crikey. But, no, they, they actually came in to do the whole number and put him in the, uh, the morgue, and the fucker woke up. He was all screwed up in his head. He didn't get back to normal for a few weeks. They flew him back privately, and they had to strap him in the bed because he, he wanted to get out and fly the plane. Oh. They get him back to a hospital in, uh, I think it was Oxfordshire, and um, Simon Porter, his manager, told me that he realised Rick's brain was sort of gone because Mm. at one point Rick said to him, Simon, Simon, come here, come here, come here. Listen, don't say anything to Francis, which is how a lot of Rick's conversations began. Mm. Don't say anything to Francis, but I really fancy the new Rolls Royce, Okay, (laughs) Have I got enough money to buy it? And if I haven't, can you do something and... And Simon's going, well, which one is that? Now, I can't remember which yeah. one it was, but... but so, say it was a posh one, right, yeah. Silver Shadow 5.0. Right. And Simon goes, well, how much is that? And Rick goes, well, you can get a really good, uh, you know, uh, not brand new, but, you know, mm. like... Second hand. He goes, for 1,500 quid. Simon went, <laughs> fuck 
are you talking about? And he realised Rick thought it was still 1973. Oh, dear. When 1,500 quid was, I don't know what that would be now, mm. 15 grand, 30 grand? I he don't recovered know. from this, though. He did, although he never fully regained his physical yeah. poise, put it that way. I was talking to him literally just a few weeks before he died. There was plans for him to do a solo album, which yeah. actually finally came out in 2018. I went straight into the charts, interestingly enough. Mm-hmm. And he was going to do a book. That got shelved. Was that going to be with you? He asked me to do it. Yeah. And the truth was I was really, really busy doing other stuff. They wanted to get the book out real right. quick. One of those deals, yeah, I know. And I just wasn't able to do it. Yeah, but we yeah, then yeah. talked about maybe doing some audience with type shows. Yeah, right. But it was all in discussion. So what I did do for them was I, I was on the phone with him for a couple of hours and I put together a, a book proposal purely because I've known Simon, their manager, for 40 yeah. years and I've known them and we would be doing other business with yeah. the shows and I yeah. just, you know... Sure. help out. Yeah. You're very kind like that. Well, to Rick, because he was one of those people who always had helpers. Yeah. I don't know why we all rushed to help him so much, because he was a very high-maintenance pain in the arse quite often. Yeah, I've met a few of those. Um, <laughs> really? Have you? <clears throat> <laughs> Go on. He sounded like a good bloke. Look, man, I spent a couple of hours on the phone with him. I can't say I knew him better than that, but I will say that I thought he was a lovely chap based on that, that experience. And what would you say the most famous status quo songs are? Uh, whatever you want, rock and roll over the world. Okay, let me stop you there. Who wrote whatever like you that. want? Ask Who wrote question. whatever you want? Uh, was it um, was it Rick Parfit? It was Rick Parfit. <laughs> Rocking all over the world was famously written by John Fogerty. Of course. But who brought it to quo to do on the album? Do tell. Rick Parfit. Good Lord. In fact, Francis Rossi hated the song and didn't want to do did, it. Did, 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 did. That started Live Aid. Very good, it As did. I'm, no, the reason I, I repeat myself about this is because uh, I think I mentioned in a previous podcast, the first time in my life I was allowed to stay up all night was for Live Aid in 85. And they started the entire show with that. And I remember thinking... At, this, at this, midday. Right, when the crowd were comatose, right? And I remember thinking, this is bollocks. But actually, it really, really got the whole place going. I know yeah. it's cheesy... I know it's the... We'll come to this, because I want to talk to you about Quo's profile and how they See, were relentlessly I, pilloried by I, the press. I, I don't think starting Live Aid with Rockin' All Over the World was cheesy at all. I would wager right now that the only two bands anybody remembers from that day are Queen and Quo. Dead Rock Stars. Carpe Diem, baby. I want to talk about the songs, because Rocking All Over the World... In those days, you made albums for 40 minutes and you you went into the studio maybe with two songs and you worked it out from there. If the album wasn't so good, didn't matter, there'd be another one in eight months' time. And with Rockin' All Over the World, they needed another song. They were short of material. And Rick said, what about this song? Francis said, not in this lifetime, as it were. Mm. But out of desperation did it. And Rick was like, no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And when I asked you, name me the best-known Quote songs. The first one you said was Whatever You Want. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. The second one you said was Rocking All Over the World. Mm. Thank you, Rick. What, about, what would be the third one? I would say Down Down. That's Francis. Just to throw in a little personal anecdote, that was my entry point to quote. Down Down? Yeah, when yeah. I was a kid, my dad great, had great the... Record. Isn't it, right? And my dad had the On The Level LP with that amazing cover shot, you know, where they're in the false perspective room. Your dad had On The Level? Yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. There were cool little nice LPs like cool that. Cool dad? Yeah, I think so. He went to Woodstock. That's for another, well, another time. Get, get rid of you and bring him in. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. But we uh, we um, had the LP, and I remember listening to Down Down, and then I remember about the same time reading and Smash It again, which was my Bible when I was 14 years old, right? You used to buy Smash Hits, <clears throat> didn't Again, you? Again, I was, I was a child. That was what you had back in the day. A young 
carefree, carefree gay um, child. Young, sort of uh, callow youth. Right, so I wanted to talk about this. They relentlessly mocked Quo, and specifically that song, Down, Down, because it repeats the, the line, Down, Down, Deeper, Down, Down, Deeper, Down. There's this whole bullshit, which I want to dispel about. They're only <laughs> using three chords. There's ten chords in Down, Down alone, right? Are there? Yeah, yeah of course there are. I mean, if you, if you work it out. Oh, um, which I've never the fact, done. What they should have taken the piss out of is the relentless boogie figure, right, at which they played on their chords, which was do, 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 mm. do, do, do. It's not about the number of chords, it's about the reliance on that boogie thing. But do you know where the reliance on that boogie thing came from? I it, don't. Francis's mother was Irish and his father was Italian. Yeah. And so Francis tells me that the whole signature close sound came from a confluence of old-fashioned Italian and Irish music, which basically relies on the shuffle. So if you think of Italian music... <laughs> Irish music. I'm Irish. So Irish music is all... Hold a diddly diddle down, 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 deeper, 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 and down. Of course, it all makes sense. So it was the shuffle. Yeah. The shuffle was the moneymaker. Yeah. Now, um, people took the piss out of that because they didn't understand it and it wasn't fashionable. People are wankers. Well, they are fucking journalists, man. One of my heroes as a writer was a guy called Tom Hibbert. I don't know if you ever met him. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I love right. Tom's work. Yeah. Fucking amazing. He used to take the piss relentlessly out of his subjects, and I always admired that. But that was all subjects. It wasn't just quiet. It was no, everybody. Admittedly. But he was one of that sort of cadre of writers from Smash Hits and those other teeny mags of the time, which I enjoyed, but just relentlessly mocked everyone, and, and Quote certainly got the sharp end of that because of... Because of their supposed simplicity now, this is what I want to talk about a little bit. The denim, the double denim, the triple denim, you know, the relentless headbanging, the sort of heavy rock look when the music was not very heavy, you know, the Telecasters, any guitar player will tell you that that is the most bread and butter, meat and potatoes (laughs) guitar that there is, right? And the sort of relentless English boringness of it as certain people perceived it and the fact that it was all the same as certain people perceived it. You can see why people mocked them. I, I understood at the time why people mocked them and said they're boring, they're going on forever, the dinosaurs, yada, yada, yada. Where did you stand on this? Because you were from a previous generation of listeners and critics. It was the same in uh, 72, 73 when they were having hits like Paper Plane and Caroline. Papers like The Enemy mocked them was mercilessly. Because they'd done the psychedelic thing which, which and they'd had some success with it but then when they got rid of that and went denim... People perceived that as a cheesy move? I don't know. No, 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 it wasn't that at all. It really was, there wasn't an intellectual element to what they did. There was not, that's for sure. Um, And don't forget, the early 70s, you know, on Rolling Stone and NME, where you've, you've really got the first flowering of pompous, intellectual yeah. rock journalism. Now, there was some great rock journalism done in those days, yeah. but these are the same people that considered Led Zeppelin and the status quo as blood brothers. Mm. Boneheaded music for boneheaded people. It's, you know, headbangers. Get yeah, stoned yeah. And, and bang your head. And, and in both cases, not only was that view incredibly snobbish, mm. it was also something to do with the fact that, as with Black Sabbath, these bands were independently successful they actually didn't need yeah. to be on the cover of a magazine yeah. to sell out what was then the Empire Paul Wembley, now Wembley Arena. Right. Quo did foster a populist image, you know, that album Pile Driver. Yeah. But at the same time, these were great songs. I mean, yeah. when I was working with them, my... Uh, By the way, tell me what capacity you worked with them. What was it? When I was uh, ghosting the memoir in oh, 2003. Right, right. My eldest daughter was three at the time and was listening to the Tweenies and uh, Teletubbies. And she loved Quo. Really? Um, My father-in-law, who was retired, and his wife retired, they were well into their 60s at the time, loved Quo. 
And the shows I saw on that tour, clearly they couldn't do all 65 hit singles in a show, mm-hmm. but every single track was a hit. Mm. And the audience literally went from children to students there in an ironic sense. Oh, those fuckers, I hit all that. But they, you know, really joined in. I know, I know. Everybody joins in. And it's, I mean, to the point where these days, although the, they were despised by the critics <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, these days it's virtually against the law not to like the quote. Mm. I mean, they did Glastonbury a few years ago and everybody just had the most wonderful time. because it's the songs, isn't it? You it's, cannot argue with their songs. It's the songs. I mean, I, yeah. I used to say, if you drop that band into the middle of the South American jungle, assuming yeah. there's any jungle left, and they started playing... By the way, you got to give credit to Alan Lancaster. Hell of a bass player. Sorry, I interrupted you. If you dropped into the South American jungle... People would recognise the tune. No, no, I don't think they'd recognise it at all. I just think it's an undeniable... These are undeniable up, pieces of music. They would just dancing. start wagging their heads. Mick and, and I are headbanging at this t- point, t- everyone. Tapping their toes. <laughs> what, what was the... Uh, if, if you happen to know this number, what was the sort of ratio of hits written by Parfit as opposed to Rossi? And the others? Well, I don't know a precise number, but... Um, Ballpark figure. Rossi wrote the majority. I mean, let's call it... It'd be more than 60, 40, less than 75, 25. A goodly number were written by Rick Parfit. They were, and there were also exceptions. You know, when people go on about the three-chord, heads-down, no-nonsense boogie. Rick wrote Living on an Island, which came out on Rod Stewart's label, Reva. Mm -hmm. And that's an acoustic ballad Mm. with a very gentle electric piano on it, very light drums... And was an enormous hit. It nearly broke them again in America. Talking of enormous hits, what did you think of In the Army Now, their cover of? I thought it was fantastic. It really uh, revitalised them, as far as I can tell. Their it career. did. I, I know there are purists... Stand that, up and fight! ...that go back to the 70s. Our good friend Dave Ling, you know, insists that everything Quo did pretty much after 82, you know, was worthless. Do you know, man, knowing as I do a lot of people from those reissue labels who put out all the pie stuff, Dog oh, Two Head yeah. and all that yeah, stuff, yeah, you yeah, can't look it, but stuff. there are people who will stop listening, as you say, in the mid-70s. But I, mean, I think that's know. the same with, with a lot of bands. You yeah. know, I mean, people like me, yeah. you know, apart from Heaven and Hell with Dio, for me... Oh, yeah! This, the Sabbath era with Ozzy, that's the Sabbath era. But again, only the first five albums. Because I was a kid and that's how seriously I took it. Put that out on the wall. But by the time In the Army comes out in 86, 87, you're talking about a band that are nearly 20 years into a career at a mm. time when 20 years into a... These days it's nothing. It is a mere bagatelle. Mm, nib, nib. But back then that was... You're into a, another generation of fans. And, right. And I remember my youngest brother was uh, about 15 at the time, and he loved that song. And I'd be kind of like, yeah, but you've got to check out Down Down. Yeah. And he, he had no idea what I was talking about. He had no idea of their history or mm. what the deal was. He just loved that song. You know, now I come to think of it, I haven't heard it for probably 10 years, but it's actually a shit hot song. Yeah. Well, it wasn't written by them. No, it, no, no. It was another Dutch cover. Band, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it was a, uh, the production was really, really sort of soft and sickly smooth, actually. But that's what made it, I guess, a giant hit. Because I assume it was a giant hit, right? Radio it, and TV. It, 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 um, it got to number two. Oh, no, sorry, it was the only other number one after Down Down. Right, yeah. right, right. Oh, lastly on Down Down, must say, because I love throwing this in when we talk about, oh, they weren't cool. John Peel, when he did his live DJ yeah. stints, right up till, you know, before he died, 
would always end the show with Down Down. <laughs> is that right? Always. Always. It and, is and, a brilliant and course, song. Well, very contrary, Peel. I mean, I think he, yeah, yeah. he adored the fact that people would not see that coming. No. And he genuinely loved that track. Because let's face it, it's a great track. It's an awesome song. And it, it rises and falls. It starts and stops at least twice. I love and then, that. And, then and also, speeds up. It speeds up. Yeah, it does. I love that. And at the end, it goes a bit wacky, doesn't it? The bass player's doing... <laughs> dun- <laughs> it's a great tune. And I can see why people rip into it. Because it's not complex. It's not intellectual. But it's a hell of a lot of fun. And, and you know, you can't deny it. You know, was uh, was what Chuck Berry did yeah, Inter- yeah. intellectual. You can draw that parallel. ACDC intellectual. Mm. I mean, I'm intellectual. Mick, uh, Mick, clearly, that shines clearly. from your every yeah. orifice. <laughs> All right, look. Now, what we normally do at the end of these things is we award uh, marks out of five. Do we not, Mick? We for do. various criteria that we, we can do. apply to our subject at hand. We do. I was looking at uh, the first criterion that our producer Ian always suggests, and it's you know the star quality of the man, mm. the image of the man. Mm. Now, for me, when I think about Parfit on top of the pops in what now, be honest, be, now be honest, you lowered expectations with, with your intro. You said he wasn't the star of. So bear did, that in mind. I did say that. Be I stand by that, yeah, yeah. But what I was going to say was that I remember reading an interview with him where he was laughing at how they looked on Top of the Pops back in the day, you know, and they're doing the psych stuff. Right. Yellow trousers, pink shirt, green tie, all that shit. That's star quality to me, right? right. But then again, the denim came out. I don't know. What do, are we going to say? Do, do you know how the fight? denim came out, by the way? No, way. and I would like to hear that. Well, they would go to the same shops in Carnaby Street where Hendrix bought his clothes yeah. and the Small Faces bought their clothes. They were very close to the Small Faces. And they would go in and go, and the guy would go, no, 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 uh, Steve Marriott bought that in purple last oh. week, but you could have the blue one, you yeah, know. Yeah, okay. But that was all management-led. And by the early 70s, where they stopped having hits, yeah. they just turned up at a gig one night and just could not be bothered to put the clobber on anymore. Their hair was growing out anyway. Yeah. They weren't making a lot of money. And they just thought, you know what, fuck it. And they just went on stage in their street clothes, which, of course, were just jeans and T-shirts. And what about the headbanging? Was that just Nick from Deep Purple? No, that was the audience. This was definitely before your time. This is an early 70s phenomenon, to the point where the original Marquee Club used to have three rows of seats right at the front, OK? <laughs> yeah. And people would sit on the floor. Yeah, right. So at Quo Gigs in the very early 70s, as the denim thing comes in and people are growing their hair a lot of their audience would sit on the floor at the front of the yeah. gig, which was really common. And they said what they noticed was, as they were doing, you know... A bit of air guitar. Dunk, 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 bit of air guitar, but also do, 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 the do, hair. The hair going like this. So sitting down, headbanging. Yeah. You're going to give yourself sciatica doing that. Well, eventually, of course, they would stand up, presumably, <laughs> once they got going, you know. Ian Gillen, in his autobiography, claims to have invented headbanging. And who are we to say him no? He's full of shit. Ian Gillen invented headbanging. I don't even know why you read that book. I bought that book. It was the biggest pile of rubbish I've ever read in my life. It's a disappointment. I I would have. Ian Gillen is a very interesting guy with great story to tell. Shitty book. Don't bother with it. He reckons he invented headbanging. That's pretty much what he says. Mm. All right. Points uh, for Rick Parfit as a star. Four. Mm. What about his influence and his legacy? We talked about the songs he wrote. We talked about, I don't know. Is there another quo? I don't think there's another quo out there. Is there? Mm. There isn't. I, I think with Rick, it's really hard to talk about legacy because... The songs are his legacy. Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's a great fondness and admiration amongst the fans. Rick is, especially now since he died, I think they always related to him a little bit better than they did Francis because mm, interesting. they saw Rick as one of us. Where Francis yeah. it, it tends to be slightly more aloof. He's like the cunning genius. Do you know, 
This is not really relevant to what we're saying, but I want to throw it in. I interviewed him a couple of years before he died, and it was right after he'd stopped drinking, properly stopped drinking, if he ever really stopped drinking, right? He said, that's it, not drinking anymore, I've had X decades of it, I feel great, I don't smoke, I'm taking exercise, I feel absolutely brilliant, and whether or not, or, you know, whatever transpired after that, I don't know. He was super, super optimistic, you know, about what lay ahead, and I admired that. Because it's very easy to become jaded and not interested and bored. They had that acoustic thing out. They had that whole string of arms. Acoustic. 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 Right? acoustic. They were either acoustic or they were covers, weren't they? And it was all mm. a bit shit. Mm. But nonetheless, he was ungrateful. And that, in some ways, that gutted me even more when he died like a year later. I was like, what the fuck? The guy was apparently on the up and up, ready to go up and at him and keep going. Right. So it's, it's, but just to finish, it seems to me that he still had some potential. And that, oh, that, was, that was taken from him. He totally still had potential. Right. Right? I mean, the thing with Rick was he was always going to keep going until one day he dropped dead, which mm. is exactly what happened. Like us. But, you know, you know, you say he was full of potential, I mean, and he was, but Rick was always full of something, you know. Mm. Rick, in 2005, had a cancer scare. He was Ooh. told he had lung cancer and he only had so long to live. And he outperformed that as well. But while that was going on, he was told to cut down on his drinking. Mm. I mentioned this because you said he'd cut out drinking. Yeah. And he told me, he said, uh, yeah, the doctor said, like, you know, uh, two drinks a day, maximum, <laughs> maximum. So I said, well, how about I don't drink all week? And then on the Sunday, I could have, <laughs> uh, 14. I could have 14, you know, because by then I would deserve a big night. He goes, and the doctor said, no, it don't work like that, Rick. Mm, yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, so now he's going to give up booze, smoking. I saw him about two years later. What's left? Booze, smoking. I said, what happened to that? He goes, oh, no, no, I'm, I, I got over that. <laughs> I got past it. Yeah. All right, good. Taste for excess we've really talked about with the cars. Five. Five out of five. And finally, death as a career move, which our cynical producer always puts in. I don't know. I mean, he is still part of the conversation, although he has only recently departed this mortal coil. He's not bigger than he was. I mean, Quo still exists. Quo still very much revered and taken the piss out of an equal measure. People aren't going to forget Rick Parfit in a hurry. No, I think but that's fair to say about any famous musician that dies. I think yeah. career move, you look at Hendrix and, you know, great career move, not great, obviously, musically or in life. So but dying young is a career move. It is, isn't it? If you're famous. By, people go, oh, man, there's so much potential wasted. By and large, yeah. In Rick's case, you know, I, I actually think it's weakened the whole quo brand. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think they'll get past it as the years go by. But as a sort of a, a cool move, nah. So it, I'm going to say one. I mean, it must be downhill from Quo from now on, surely. Well, what's, what's, what are they going to do, get bigger? Well, in fairness, Rick had already left the band at the time he died. They've had a replacement in the... Is that right? They've had a replacement in the band, Rick, his name is. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Rich, sorry, Rich. I beg your pardon, Rich. He's been in the band for two years now, yeah. Good Lord. Because when Rick had his collapse in the summer of 2016, he, I mean, Quo work a lot. I mean, yeah, Rick yeah, yeah. couldn't keep up. So by mutual agreement, uh, Rick was still getting his full quotient of royalties. Ha, quotient. And, there you Shut go. Shut up. A, quo, a quotient. But this new guy, Rich, has been in the band for a couple of years now. So, so there's they're, they're going to the make... Band. There's life in the band. They're making a new album. Yeah, okay, uh, okay. And there'll be a big tour next year. Do you know, I've become mates over the last couple of years with Rhino Edwards, who I think is a splendid mm. lad. Good bloke. Plays at the bass show every year. All right, good. Now, next week, Mick, we're talking about a truly interesting character, are we not? I mean, they're all interesting characters, right? I'll um, be trying to. Well, we're doing our best. We're trying to... <laughs> all right, good. So here we go. Now, here's a clue, all right? Like Rick Parfit and like the Quo themselves, our next dead rock star dabbled in psychedelia before fully committing to a 42 decibel rocking band. 42 decibels? That's what it says here. Both the Quo 
and our next Dead Rock Stars band were fully committed to Boogie and in fact were taken the piss out of by the critics because of this and because of their reliance on uh, supposedly three chords. If you haven't worked it out, here's some more clues. Alan Lancaster, Quo's bassist. Well, he fucked off to Australia, did he not, in the 1980s where he remains. He did, yeah. Our next dead rock star, and this is actually quite good, had made the opposite journey the previous decade, had he not. If I answer that, it'll give it away who it is, because obviously it's give a it huge now. mystery. All right, good. And finally, <laughs> both bands have a song called Overdose. This is going Wait, on way what, too what? fucking long. <laughs> right, yeah, leave, cut that bit out. Okay, good. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, if you would please share uh, the hell out of this podcast from wherever you accessed it, the Twitter page, the Facebook page. Mick and I are both active on those media, so please do drop us a line, say hello. And we will see you next week. And uh, anything else from you, Mick Wall, before no, we go? No, no, Goodbye. All right, that's it. Share the hell out of this. We love you. This has been a Seven Digital production. Uh, the producer's a guy called Ian Callahan, who is he's a horrible man, but he looks nice, and that's important. 